Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 284. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. We've got a great show today. We have, tell you what's coming up straight away, we have Cheapskates with our very own assistant editor, Adam Piot. Then we have The Woke Up the Nameless Ridge by Hugh Howie. And that story is narrated by the one and only Mr. Nick Cam. And I've had the, well, I suppose you could say pleasure of being one of the two. I've had the, the pleasure of seeing Nick in the full bloom there on high definition video the other day. We had a little chat over on kind of Skypey sort of program. And <laughs> not a pretty sight. <laughs> Keeps the kids off the fireplace if you had a photograph like that, Nick. So I'll tell you what, we'll jump straight into this week's show and Adam, cheapskate, sir. Greetings to my fellow coach class passengers aboard the Starship Sofa. My name is Adam, welcoming you to Cheapskates and bringing you reviews of free science fiction ebooks and audiobooks. And today, I guess awesome free android apps you can't live without if you're a podcast junkie like me a fair early warning if you're an iphone user or lord help you blackberry you might want to skip ahead a few minutes this app is yet to be on anything other than android but before you do may i add ha okay just android users here now capital see whether you can relate to this experience You have a phone with the ability to play MP3s, and you find it useful for tossing your podcasts onto. But the process is annoying. Either you attach by USB and download it all to the micro SD card by wire, or you do it over Wi-Fi or mobile using perhaps Google Reader. This latter option often means that you can't download the file directly, but have to link to the actual website and try to find the download button there. Any way you slice it. Not ideal. And then along came BeyondPod. I swear, it feels like it leapt fully formed and ready to go from my brain like Athena popped out in full armor from the head of Zeus. What I mean is, it truly does everything I always hope for in a podcast program. Some features. Download and play podcasts in the same app. Stream episodes directly with a high-speed connection a smart playlist which automatically arranges episodes in the order you want to hear them in, the option to automatically delete podcasts after you've listened to them, or lock them to prevent deletion, play any local files through BeyondPod like they were a podcast stream, integrates directly with LibriVox.org, which I've mentioned here often, to download free audiobooks straight to your phone. 
a sleep option to turn off after a set time. I'm sure there's much I'm forgetting, but I'll be darned if I'm going to go back and edit that. That's all free with the light version. If you spring the $7 for the full version unlock, you get some additional convenience features. Namely, there's one button to check and download all feeds, you can queue downloads, and you can schedule automatic updates. With that last one, you can even set it to flip Wi-Fi on to download, then switch it back off when it's done. Otherwise, you download episodes one at a time with the light version. But you start off with a full trial for seven days, so you get an idea pretty quickly whether you can live without the full version or not. Anybody care to guess whether I could live with it or not? Yeah, you're probably right. Honestly, the only things I want are a Mark All Feeds red button, better subject categories on the feed search, and support for M4A files so I can listen to the Drabblecast. Go download it. You'll be glad you did. All right, at this point, I'd like to welcome back all non-Android users. Don't worry, you uh, didn't miss anything all that special. Yeah. As we get on to the review proper, you need to know that in the last year, I have discovered online self-publishing, namely Kindle Direct Publishing and Smashwords for eBooks, and CreateSpace and Lulu for print-on-demand paperbacks. In the midst of this, I've also discovered how these new tools are revolutionizing the publishing process for both authors and readers. According to Amazon, their eBook sales grew by 70% in 2012, compared to 2011, while print grew by a mere 5%. But I don't particularly care about corporations' bottom lines, as important as they've been to this self-publishing revolution. I care about writers. Let me fire off a few stats from a story on supercopyeditors.com on the topic. Self-published book numbers grew by 287%, from 2006 to 2012. 2011 revenues are estimated at $2.97 billion, about 16% of the entire publishing industry. The standout success story in science fiction is, in my mind, Hugh Howey. Hugh started off his early professional life not in front of a computer, but repairing them. His life then brought him to purchase a sailboat, as his home, no less, partway through college. Dropping out, he sailed the East Coast, then settled down to become a yacht captain. Truly settling down with his wife, he had a variety of jobs, including roofing and working in a bookstore. Then at 35, he struck success with a small 12,000-word novelette with the unassuming name of Wool, which he self-published on Amazon with a price tag of 99 cents. He was shocked as sales picked up, then skyrocketed on almost entirely word of mouth. Based on his popularity, he extended the series. Now his story shows up in about every national publication you can name, and Ridley Scott has optioned the movie rights. He's received big offers from publishers, most of which he turned down because, get this, he could make more self-publishing online. Finally, he got an offer from a publisher willing to take the rare step of leaving him the digital rights, so it will now show up on Dead Tree versions. Hugh eventually figured out how to make the first small novelette, wait for it, free. And that's how Hugh 
and wool landed on my radar. Wool takes place in a post-apocalypse universe where everyone in the world lives in a population-controlled underground silo of just a little more than 100 levels. The only view of the ruined world outside comes from a wraparound screen on level 1 that displays the feed from four cameras outside. Occasionally, these cameras need to be cleaned from the toxic atmosphere bombarding them. So the criminals and miscreants are sent out to clean them, then die. Oh, and one other group is sent to cleaning. Anyone who wants to go outside gets the punishment of having their wish fulfilled. Our protagonist is Holston, the silo's sheriff, who when the story opens is walking up the long spiral staircase to his death. These opening paragraphs are, to my mind, worthy to be included among the great works of literature. The children were playing while Holston climbed to his death. He could hear them squealing, as only happy children do. While they thundered about frantically above, Holston took his time, each step methodical and ponderous, as he wound his way around and around the spiral staircase, old boots ringing out on metal treads. The treads, like his father's boots, showed signs of wear. Paint clung to them in feeble chips, mostly in the corners and undersides, where they were safe. Traffic everywhere on the staircase sent dust shivering off in small clouds. Holston could feel the vibrations in the railing, which was worn down to the gleaming metal. That always amazed him, how centuries of bare palms and shuffling feet could wear down solid steel. One molecule at a time, he supposed. Each life might wear away a single layer, even as a silo wore away that life. Each step was slightly bowed from generations of traffic. The edge rounded down like a pouting lip. In the center there was almost no trace of the small diamonds that once gave the treads their grip. Their absence could only be inferred by the pattern to either side, the small pyramidal bumps rising from the flat steel with their crisp edges and flecks of paint. This vivid language is one part of Wool's appeal. The other comes from Hugh's sympathetic and believable characters, primarily Holton and his wife, Allison. In a series of flashbacks, we learn that Allison has discovered through her own work lines of hidden programming in the silo's computer system, a program designed to simulate an entire landscape. The outside is livable, she says, and the screens are a lie. She wants to go outside. Something I find interesting about Wool is that reaction seems to be either hot or cold. In one such discussion on Facebook, one of these cold readers said that from the hype they expected Isaac Asimov or Ray Bradbury and were disappointed with the ending. My reply was, well, who does write like Asimov and Bradbury? I also pointed out that little of the hype comes from the humble Hugh himself, who seems almost as bewildered at Wool's success as the many book critics. I think part of it comes from disappointment at the twist ending to Wool, and I'll give them that it's no The Sixth Sense, but it's not bad either. The key to Wool is to focus on the fantastic world-building and use of language. But I think you've heard enough from me today. So... Please excuse my mild hero worship here as I talk to Hugh Howie. All right. Um, on the line, we have Hugh Howie. Um, Hugh Howie, you 
spent part of your college sailing the East Coast. You, quote, settled down to be a yacht captain, uh, and you've been a science fiction self-publishing success. When are you going to admit that this is all made up to meet girls? <laughs> uh, you know, I, I've been with my wife for almost 11 years, so it's not, uh, it's not panning out that way. Okay, but, all uh, right. Well, yeah, I, it, it sounds it sounds ridiculous when you when you say it like that. But, uh. <laughs> well, I, I I was looking at your bio and and I went, is this guy for real? <laughs> um, you know, and I, I Hugh, I I think you might be my new hero. Uh, but <laughs> oh, it, anyway, um, you know, t- tell me a little bit about the the process of writing wool, um, and, and how it. I know it's annoying to say, you know, where do you get your ideas? Um, so I just want to ask you, what was the seed that grew into these books? Well, I, the reason I started writing is my, uh, you know, I was working as a yacht captain and met this um, awesome girl who dragged me away from the ocean and settled me down, kind of um, domesticating. And we ended up moving to Virginia, she did her internship and her postdoc up in, in Virginia. And, uh, my wife is a doctor and I'm a college dropout. So I've been kind of following her, uh, while she finished up her, her, um, PhD in psychology. So, uh, I ended up, the guy I bought my house from up in Virginia was a roofer and I ended up doing a job for him. And that led to two years of working on roofs with him and this other guy and it was the absolute perfect job for coming up with story ideas. You're just basically <laughs> daydreaming all day while you do a very rote mechanical uh, labor. And it was during that time that I thought up the idea for the wool story and my Molly Fide saga. But it took five years before I got around to writing wool. And the um, the what really inspired me to write that story, I, we were um, – just getting off of boats, you know, and finally having TV and the things that you take for granted when you're, when you, you know, uh, have a, a home. I, I started watching 24 hour news for the first time and I realized how dire everything seemed when I was watching CNN versus when I was like spending time in Cuba versus watching the news about Cuba. And I wondered like, God, what would it be like, you know, this Plato's cave analogy of seeing shadows on a wall, what would it be like if, your only knowledge of the outside world was a single screen. Hmm. And I, I felt like that's kind of how a lot of people um, live, where you, instead of going out and seeing the world, you kind of rely on 24-hour news to tell you what it's like. And, of course, news, is they're going to pick the worst things possible to, to show you. Hmm. That, that Plato's yeah. cave analogy is interesting. I um, I hadn't put those two together. Um, so, so, I mean, would you – would you recommend a, uh, a career in roofing as an inroad to uh, um, publishing science fiction? Absolutely. I, <laughs> I, to tell you that, you know, people, oh, my God, you've been a yacht captain and all the places you've lived, and now you're a best-selling writer. And two of the happiest years of my life were spent in, in Virginia with these two other guys on all these just the, the, the scenes and – Charlottesville, Virginia, and the Shenandoah Valley where we worked. It, I mean, I was just excited to go to work every day. And then everyone tells me roofing is like one of the worst jobs imaginable. But that was some of the happiest, um, the happiest period of my life. Yeah. Well, in, in all seriousness, I can connect with that. Um, I mean, personally, I 
I worked on a hog farm <laughs> for one summer and, and, uh, actually came out with a lot of good ideas because your, your brain is just kind of in this, um, it's like this spin cycle almost, you know, <laughs> it, it, um, just kind of sits there and runs and, and it, you never know what's going to come out. Yeah. I, working in a bookstore is the same way. I, um, after we left Virginia, I got, uh, my next career was as a bookseller and there's a lot of very, well, a lot of times standing around or, you know, dusting shelves or just shelving books and unpacking books. And the whole time your mind is able to work on other problems. And, you know, you would write the scene that next time you sat down in front of your laptop, that's what you would basically just record what you had thought up earlier. So um, there's... Those sorts of jobs, the, the day jobs that kept me going through the writing were, were, were crucial, I think, um, to coming up with the stories that I would later set down. Interesting. Um, well, this is obviously for the cheapskates segment uh, here on Starship Sofa. So one question I want to ask is, you know, why was keeping this first volume uh, free important to you? And, and why, why are you continuing to to um, offer it free? Well, I, I charge uh, as much for my works as I think they're worth. So um, free <laughs> seemed about right. Now, I when I first published this, I had no idea that there was any commercial potential here. I was working on my novels, and I had this I This was going to be a novel, the the short story that, that started off the Wolves uh, series. And it was living in my brain for five years, and I needed to set it down. So I wrote it as a novelette. It's like 12,000 words. And I put it on Amazon, and I would have made it permanently free if there was an option to do that. But they make you charge at least 99 cents because, um, you know, Amazon's in the business of making money. So um, I chose the, the smallest amount possible. I didn't. I would have put it on my website for free had I thought anybody would find it there, but um yeah so it kind of the market taught me um it it wasn't a really a devious plan on my part i i just saw man i'm selling a lot more copies of this than anything else that i have so i i left it at 99 cents and continued the story Uh, and then i when i joined kdp select and i was able to do free days i saw how many readers i would get that way and then finally figured out through uh an online forum how to make things permanently free, which is just to make it free elsewhere and then make Amazon price match it. So, yeah, there's really no great plan. It was just really, you know, begging for readers and making your stories free seems like a good way to increase your readership. It's a good inroad. Yeah, and if it's, if, if it's, if, if the story is going to capture, uh, you know, an audience, um, you know, no matter what price you put it, with people able to sample and word of mouth, uh, what you want is just to get uh, a lot of fans behind you. And that's what um, Neil Gaiman, uh, you know, when I'm working a bookstore, I kind of follow the industry news, and Neil Gaiman showed this with American Gods. He made one of he made his entire book free on his website, taught his publisher to doing it, and the the sales took off, and it's seems counterintuitive, but people just fell in love with his writing and they wanted to take the copy with them, not be bound to their computer. So. Okay. Um, do you think that 
that wool and and your other works could have been a success 20 years ago you know but before you had these self-publishing options like how important um was online self-publishing to to helping you that's crucial i 20 years ago, I would have had to submit wool to all the science fiction magazines, and there were more of them around back then. But, you know, I could have tried to get it published in one of those. And if the response was, you know, positive, and I wouldn't have made any money off of it. They'd pay you by the word and be very small amount of money. But Is it like a nickel a word? Know, years, they used to yeah, yeah, it, it like might have been a nickel a word 20 years ago. It, it's something like Asimov's, but... Yeah, so books like Ender's Game and Fahrenheit 451, they started as uh, short stories that, because of the popularity, um, were expanded into novels. And so there's a chance that this could have happened, that that old route. Um, science fiction is one of the few genres I think you could you could get away with this in. But self-publishing has just made it... Um, it's made it easier in the sense you can concentrate on the writing instead of concentrating on the querying and the submission and, you know, who have you been rejected by and who's taking multiple submissions and uh, what agents read your work. You just don't spend any time with that. You go directly to the reader and you get your work polished as, as well as possible, make it available and start working on the next story. And that's kind of the model I pursued for a few years, just writing um, in every spare moment, you know, and getting my works out there. Um, I'd forgotten that about Ender's Game that started off as a short story. And that's kind of interesting because, you know, it's like science fiction. You can always expand the world <laughs> and go into more detail right. about it. Yeah, exactly. I think it was the battle room was the name of that story. And it, I think it may have been up for a couple of awards. I'm sure it was. <laughs> and then, um, but he, um, you know, and, when I uh, when I wrote Wool, I'd just written another novelette called The Plagiarist that I've got you know an entire expansion of that story in mind. And and when this is when I'm done with this, I might return to that. But I see kind of a new model uh, for myself, at least writing shorter works and getting more of them out there and seeing which ones um, which ones kind of trigger something with the readers and and then concentrate on that kind of a shotgun approach yeah and write you know lots of different genres and styles mm-hmm. instead of writing sequels to the to the one book that's not selling so you um, put it out there and see what sticks and pursue that exactly yeah so i've got you know a lot of great um uh, erotica stories that i'm dying to tell and some um i'm saying that half jokingly but actually um watching some of my fellow indies do so well with romance and erotica and new adult, I realize I'm writing the complete wrong genre. <laughs> uh, th- those do seem to hit. And, um, boy, what They're was the, the one, um, shades of gray that actually started on a website. Yeah. It started as fan fiction. Actually yeah. it was twilight fan fiction. <laughs> oh my, um, I won't go there, but anyway, <laughs> um, <laughs> So, you know, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, what what is it like to be famous overnight? You know, Wool's been optioned by Ridley Scott. You've been on the New York Times bestsellers list. You got the Kindle Books Reviews 2012 Indie Book of the Year Award. And, you know, I, as I look now, you're ranked on Amazon and science fiction above 
Orson Scott Card, Stephen King, and John Scalzi, <laughs> just in the top ten. You know, what is that like? Uh, who's um, John Scalzi? I've never heard John of him. John Scalzi. No, I'm totally kidding. Uh-huh. John, John and I have gone back and forth on online a couple of like we went head to head with the Goodreads Choice Award this year, and um, so uh, there's no chance. Uh, I don't know. Maybe he'll hear this and he'll um, uh, get a laugh out of that. Um, yeah, it's, I, it's bizarre. I, um, I I was reading. I read the New York Times every morning. It's a habit I developed from working at the bookstore where we got free copies and. Uh, this morning I'm reading the art section and there's an article about Goodreads and then they mention wool and like, there's my name in this, in the article. And, you know, I, I like fall off the sofa when stuff like this happens. It just doesn't, um, none of it computes yet. And so I'm kind of stumbling through it. Like, um, you know, living out someone else's, um, dream and I'm, I'm just a spectator in it all. It's very, uh, very surreal. There's like Hugh Howey, author of Wool, that everyone's written about, and then there's, you know, Hugh Howey. <laughs> well, I, I feel like the same guy. I mean, I'm yeah. ready at, at any moment to go back to my, you know, bookstore and shelve books, and this will just have been this, you know, crazy ride that I went on for a little while. Why? What would that be like to go into the bookstore and <laughs> realize that, you know, the the guy shelving the books of uh, Wool Omnibus is actually the guy who wrote them. <laughs> um, yeah. Be, uh, I don't know. That, that was always my dream when I was working in bookstores, though. It's like, you know, one one day, one of these will be my book. And yeah, um, yeah it's, uh, it's crazy to think in just one year. It's only been a year and two weeks since I worked my last day at the bookstore. Wow. <laughs> That's kind of crazy. Um. Yeah, speaking of of uh, John Scalzi, I um, reviewed Red Shirts on uh, Cheapskates last year. So, uh, John Scalzi, if you are listening, anytime you want to come on the show, we can do that too. <laughs> um, Just have us both on. I'm dying to do like a dance off with him. Um, yeah, just you know, a manly, you know, like full ballet dance off. You're you're talking actual dancing. I thought you were like doing a write off. Oh no! I, if we do a write off, you'd kill me. I want, <laughs> I want something that I've got a chance on, man. I've I've seen some of his moves; they're not very good. <laughs> you, you know, uh, l- looking at that list again, you know the uh, the only one above you is uh, actually George R. R. Martin, and uh, I understand you you actually met him. Yeah, at uh, Worldcon, we were. Uh, on the same signing table and he had this line that went off for miles. Uh, uh, it was, the back of the line was as far away as his next book. <laughs> very, very far away. And I had like no one standing in front of my table. So it left me time to, to chat with them. And I, I didn't have any, any of his books for him to sign. So I, I had him sign one of my books. And at the time, like, Bull was number six in science fiction, and five of his books were one through five. Okay, so he wrote in there um, to number six, keep trying. <laughs> he was—he's so gracious. What a great guy! And uh, and I just asked him, like, could you just please go back to the fantasy section in, in Amazon because you're you're kind of crowding us out over here. And um, but he he told me that uh, the reason he's in science fiction is the entire 
plot of um, his series revolves around time travel. So it just hasn't a uh, bit of a spoiler for everybody. But Whoa. So the science fiction aspects are going to come in and that's when the aliens and the vampires. <laughs> and, and, oh man. When the spaceships start landing. Yeah. I'm totally kidding. No, <laughs> it, it, it has no idea what goes on in Amazon. He's, he's so much, you know, it's low, low lives like me that actually, you know, check those kind of things like, Oh my God, where's the book ring today? And, you realize I'm absolutely too gullible for you to joke around with. <laughs> Good. <Okay. laughs> um, well, you know, let's talk a little bit about the books. Um, you know, one thing that really uh, struck me is, you know, um, that sort of dual meaning of, of wool. Um, I, I actually did a, a search for that word on my Kindle and I think it came up all of two times. <laughs> and, uh, you know, like one of those was on the, the title page. Um, so, you know, I, it, it, is it that idea of, you know, pulling the wool over your eyes? Yeah, absolutely. That's the, uh, the figurative meaning, you know, the literal is the one other, uh, instance you found was the wool pad right. that they used for the cleaning. And of course, when I, when I titled this, I had no idea a, that anyone besides my mom and my wife and two other people would ever read it. <laughs> so, uh, I didn't have to worry about the shame of having an odd title for a, a book that is going to, you know, has sold half a million copies now. Um, so the pressure was off there. Well, you did take um, advantage I, of the knitting market, that, you know, that niche. I've got the knitters, man. The knitters are like uh, – uh, there's actually a Ravelry group and all kinds of knitting clubs have read the book. They, they buy it accidentally. And like, <laughs> That's serious. really true. Like, yeah, yeah. I get emails from people that like – you know, or someone will say, you know, from New Zealand, I'll get someone uh, – this is not a history of sheep at all. <laughs> but it doesn't suck, so they keep reading it. And, uh, yeah, I, I've actually got someone asking permission to do, like, knitting patterns based on the work. And I've had people send me their knitting. Yeah, it's really cool. Um, but, yeah, so the figurative meaning was the idea of having wool pulled over your eyes. And that's the idea behind the wall screens. And and then the, the literal, you know, the surface meaning is, um, of course, the, the pads used to do the cleaning. Uh, but there's – I've built in other meanings as – as we've gone on, you know, the, the, uh, it becomes an acronym and the entire silo project, um, is actually spelled out as wool. So, uh, those things come later in the story. Um, you know, I, I know it's going farther into the, the omnibus. Um, you know, I, you always knew it guys were evil, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it, you guys, so I know. <laughs> Well, it, it is interesting because you know the the villain in that is not like your your typical stereotypical image. You know, he's he's kind of dumpy and he has a mustache and I don't know. I kind of think of John Hodgman, but <laughs> <laughs> I got to throw in that reference. Um, but you know, what, what, was there any thought behind your your villain? Yeah, you know, I the idea was to create a guy who would seem unlikable to the people. Um, that we could associate uh, with as the, as our protagonist, but the, I really wanted to have a deeper portrait of this of this character and, and show that what he was doing that seems so evil um, is in, in, in his mind and maybe even for some readers justifiable or necessary even. Hmm. Um, in a lot of ways, the entire 
uh, the, the entire Wolf series is the the Hobbesian versus the Rousseau idea of you know whether or not we need a a cruel overlord to make us behave, or if we're you know naturally good and we're perverted by our um, society. I have kind of a cynical outlook on that, but I want to leave it open to the reader. The the other thing that kind of struck me reading farther is um, the the way physical space is operating. Like, um, I I don't want to give away too much here, but, you know, we have these two locations that, you know, are probably like less than, what, like half a football field, but they might as well be on different planets. Um, And and that really, you know, struck me of, you know, in this world, it's, there's just, it's that degraded, you know? Does that make, I, I don't. Yeah. Well, the whole thing is there's so much claustrophobia and isolation and which is strange for a story to have such a feeling of, of solitude when you're kind of crammed with all these people in one, one place, but, um, uh, you know, secrecy and, and, um, the, the relationships that form are really where the solitude comes in. And then the claustrophobia, even this view of this huge expanse of outside, um, the fact that it's inaccessible means you can still have that claustrophobic feeling, with, with, um, you know, despite this mm-hmm. incredible wide view. So, um, uh, and, and then, you know, I, the, the other aspect was um, it is pretty modern technology that's in there. But then at the same time, you know, one of the most valuable things that they have is paper. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that, I thought that was an interesting contrast. Yeah. And yeah. And, uh, it's kind of steampunk in that way. It's science fiction, but the technology in some ways is, is older than what we have. So it's more, I think it makes it more relatable. You don't have to explain fusion drives or lasers or anything to, to the reader. Maybe that's one of the reasons it's had such broad appeal. It's easy to to enter in. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's nothing in there that, uh, nothing in the the first five books that we're not pretty familiar with. Well, speaking of that, you're up to book eight in the series now. Is that right? Yeah, I, I'm. The way it's gonna, it's kind of confusing. But all of Wool is now being published as a single book. Um, it's it's out in Random House. Uh, Random House in the UK, and Simon and Schuster is releasing one here in March, and they've taken the five books uh, and just made it to one story called Wool, and the sequel is called Shift, and I've written that as a trilogy, but that'll be combined into one book. Hmm. So, and in the end, it'll be a trilogy with three, three novels, but they're kind of several stories in each one. Okay, kind of kind of divide up like. Irobot or something like that is is set out. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, um, finishing up here, you know what? What sort of advice would you give to a sci-fi author who's who's starting out? Uh, you know, especially those who are considering doing uh, self-publishing. My advice is to write uh, often and to write the things that you wish were out there for you to read. Um, you know, write what what moves you and what you're passionate about and don't try to think about what's marketable and, and, um, what's commercial. I, 
the, the things that have done the best for me are the things that I would have uh, guessed would not do well. And my, what I would have thought were my most marketable works have um, not been. So I think going into it to try to have success and, and do well financially is probably the wrong um, wrong motivation. I, I would just, if you enjoy writing, do it as much as you can while you can. And uh, for me personally, I think writing shorter works and a wide variety of works and seeing what catches hold is a, is a really good good way to feel out the, um, the your readership in the market. Great. Um, well, Hugh, how are you, anything else you want to say? Yeah, I mean, one last thing on, you know, for, for advice, there's used to be self-publishing had a stigma behind it. And, and now that publishers are scouring um, best-selling, you know, indie works for their next um, next projects to take on, it, it means that we have so much freedom now as writers to get our works out there. And, and it's not going to do anything detrimental to your writing career. Uh, the, that stigma is, is long gone for publishers it's disappearing for readers. Um, so it's, it's time for us as, as authors to, you know, feel free to submit your works around if you want, but when, when all else fails, self-publish because it's not going to hurt you. It can only help you. Very good. Well, thank you very much for taking some time and, um, hope you enjoyed being on the Starship sofa. Great. Great. Thanks for having thank me on. That's all today for cheap skates, but we've still got another Hugh Howie treat for you. Keep listening for The Walk Up Nameless Ridge, Howie's Amazon single short story. The music for Cheapskates is from Regarding Your Brains by the great Jonathan Colton under a Creative Commons attribution non-commercial license. You can find Jonathan's work at www.jonathancolton.com. This is Adam reminding you that free doesn't have to mean cheap. There you go. How cool is that? Adam, great. Thank you so much. Before we get into the main fiction there, what I'd like to do is plug my live event featuring Lavi Niven, Jerry Prunell and Greg Benford. It is on the 21st of April. Listen, I would love to see you there because it's now just changed over and we're, we're allowed to kind of have more people look at the video ones. Now, I've done a couple of video ones with Amy, but you're only allowed if you kind of a few people to kind of look at it. Well, now... Go to webinars, kind of rolled out the kind of it's software, done an update, and we've got this thing now where we can get like a hundred people, and not that kind of hundred people would you know want to come to one of my events, but it's just to get these guys. And what's been actually funny, I put out a newsletter a couple of weeks ago or a week ago talking about it, how. You know, you'd, th- you'd think <laughs> science fiction writers would be kind of into that, you know, and, and be into the future and into the technology in a big way. And yeah, Jerry is, do you know what I mean? No problem at all. I kind of mentioned this last week, but just not, you know what I mean? <laughs> Larry, just not a hope. So there's been a few kind of, a few practice sessions, so I say. And it's, you know what I mean? Just to see these guys live, you know what I mean? And just like you say, to see his office, Jer- Larry Niven's office. I mean, I don't know if you've kind of seen Jerry's office on Leo the Porcho, but even that, you know what I mean? Just to like probably, have a little glimpse into that world, into their world, you know what I mean? Like, say, Larry Niven, this is the guy that wrote Ring World, you know what I mean? And, he's, and I asked him when I was just kind of doing a practice, I was, you know, blatantly, Did, Larry, is this where, is this where you, is this your office? 
And, you know, it, it's, it's, oh, it's stunning. That, that's the, the beauty of it. And we've got Larry Niven, like, a nice camera as well, because I don't think he, he had a camera on. I don't think he did. the computer work. I don't know if it's one of these four eight sixes from years ago. But, you know, again, there's Greg Benford. Do you know what I mean? The guy wrote Timescape. Do you know what I mean? One of the best stories there, bloody time travel ever. And, you know, the chance is now we're going to, I can get these three on in kind of nice video, you know, kind of high-def video and have it going out. So it would be lovely to kind of, if you just wanted to come over, it is on the 21st of April. And it, I think it's probably, I'm trying to think what times it would, would be. There's loads of different times, you know, obviously. We're doing it at 6 o'clock in the UK. And that works out at kind of Eastern stand. Eastern time is thirteen hundred. Central's twelve, twelve o'clock, eleven o'clock in the morning for Mountain Pacific. It's ten o'clock, and Australia it's three in the morning. Come on, actually Morgan's snagged himself a ticket there, so Morgan's going to come, man. So you know what I mean. There's no excuse. And the another the nice thing about it is, and like you see, I'm, tr- I'm practicing, practicing, practicing. I've got the kids running all around trying to kind of just go in the bedroom with the laptop and just try that. Just, you know, and I'm so hopefully what we'll be able to do as well is bring people in on video and they can ask a question. Do you know what I mean? In, in video, in live, in person, sort of, you know, are the best way. And when you think about it, that's. It's so close to, to this kind of version, you know, the, the way we kind of all science fiction fans dream of, you know, this kind of ready player one where you're into this kind of virtual world and you're living there almost. Hey, listen, you're nearly there. So, well, it'd be lovely, to, like I say, to see you, do you know what I mean? And I'm going to just like, ask questions, you know what I mean? If I've, I've put some kind of feelers out for people to send us in questions as well, you know. So, but it'd be lovely to have you there and for you to ask you know, Larry Niven, a question. Ring world, you know, <laughs> just fantastic. And to be quite honest, what a a guy Jerry Punnell is, you know what I mean? What a character that that fella is. And I don't know if anyone's kind of seen it. There was a there's a YouTube video where, and it's from 1979, 1979, and he's on about ebooks coming down the telephone line. Do you know what I mean? That's how he, it's just like, in 1979, he was predicting that. Do you know what I mean? This guy got it right so many times. So if you come to the front of the website, you'll see a big kind of an evening with, you know, there's like a, a kind of an icon logo there. Just click on that and that'll take you through to the Eventbrite page. Love to see you there because we found quite exciting. You know what I mean? Like, you know, I'll have to have a couple of bloody whiskeys, mind you, beforehand. So that would be fantastic. Well, we'll get into that main fiction then, what Adam's been all talking about. The Woke Up the Nameless Ridge by Hugh Howey. Hugh Howey is the New York Times bestselling author of the Wool series. He's been writing for the past five years, mostly while working the day job in a bookstore. Before this, he's worked for a decade as a yacht captain, driving boats through the Caribbean and up and down the East Coast. He currently lives in Jupiter, Florida, where he writes full-time. His stories have been optioned for by the likes of Ridley Scott and has been translated into nearly 20 languages. But you knew that already. And like I say, this story is narrated by Nick Cam and Nick is just, do you know what I mean, hits the mark straight away. So the Starship Sofa is very proud to present. The Walk Up Nameless Ridge by Hugh Howey It was difficult to sleep at night wishing good men dead. 
This was but one of the hurtful things I felt in my bones and wished I could ignore. It was an ugly truth waving its arms that I turned my gaze from, that I didn't like to admit even to myself. But while my bag warmed me with the last of its power, and my breath spilled out in white plumes towards the roof of our tent, while the flicker of a whisper-stove melted snow for midnight tea, I lay in that dead zone above sixty thousand feet, and hoped not just for the failure of those above me, but that no man summit and live to tell the tale, not before I had my chance. It was a shameful admission, one I nearly raised with Hansen, my tentmate, to see in the wrinkles of his snow-beat face whether this was a guilt shared. I suspected it was. In the mess tents and around the yellow craters we dubbed latrines, the look among us was that only one would be remembered. The rest would die alone in the snow or live a long life forgotten. And not one of us would have been able to explain to a child the difference. Frozen to death by altitude or by time was all the same. The truth was this. History remembers the first and only the first. These are the creeping and eternal glaciers, the names etched across all time like scars in granite cliffs. Those who came after were the inch or two of snowdrift that would melt in due time. They would trickle, forgotten, into the pores of the earth, be swallowed and melt snow at the feet of other forgotten men. It was a quarter past Eno's midnight and time to get up. If Schubert and Humphreys were to make it to the top, they likely would have by now. If any of their gear still worked, they would be radioing in their victory, taking the first pictures of starlit peaks wrinkling far past the limits of sight. By now they would know how many fingers and toes it cost them, how much oxygen left in their tanks, whether or not they would live to speak of the mountain's conquest. The faint odour of tea penetrated my dark thoughts. It must have been a potent brew to smell it at all. We had already scaled beyond the heights where taste and scent fade to oblivion. One had to remind himself to eat and drink, for the stomach is one of those organs that knows when to quit. It is the first, in fact, to go. The mind of the climber is the last. Hansen brought me tea. I wormed a single arm out into the cold. Though my heating bag had become a feeble thing, I did not want to lose what little it held. I coughed into my fist that persistent cough of the dead zone, and accepted the steaming mug. There were no words spoken as we forced ourselves to drink. Every twitch was an effort at those altitudes. We were sleeping higher than all the fabled peaks of Cirrus Seven. Our fourth camp along the slopes and ridge at 42,880 feet was higher than any speck of dirt on Hansen's home planet. And when we arrived on this wasteland of a frozen ball... Out here in a corner of the galaxy where men go either to not be found or to be remembered for all time, we set up a base camp very near to the highest peak of the place I grew up, Earth, where men were first born and first began to scale to deadly heights. I sipped my tea, burning my numb lips and told myself it would be an Earth-born who scaled Mount Mallory first. This was a distasteful idea that I and many others were willing to share. The secret I kept to myself was that others could die if they dared climb her before me. Two other private teams were making a go of it that season. Government expeditions and collectives of alpine clubs had given up decades ago. They now watched as men such as I took leave of our day jobs with borrowed funds and the best gear and medicine at hand, 
set out to prove what was possible. The window of opportunity for a summit was but a bare sliver of a crack, half a day at most when the fearful winds of that dizzy world slowed to a manageable gale, and before the monsoons buried the rock under drifts a hundred metres deep. The problem, of course, was in not knowing when that half-day would fall. Every climber across thirteen worlds studied the weather charts like day traders. As the seasons neared, predictions were logged on the net, men in their warm homes with their appetite intact and the feeling stilling their fingers and toes would make guesses, watch reports from the satellites left behind by those government expeditions, and make bold claims. I had been one of those prognosticators until recently, but now, after spending a night at Camp 7 beneath the Kaima Ridge, I felt as though I had graduated to one who could sneer at the antics of those at lesser heights. By dint of my travel between the stars and my arduous climb thus far, I was now an expert. It lent Hansen and I the illusion that Argus was far more refined than the others. Or perhaps it was the lack of oxygen that made us crazy this way. In the middle of that terrible night, rather than spend my last morning thinking of my wife and kids or dwell further on the debts incurred to travel to frontier stars and hike up a murderous peak, I thought of all my fellow climbers who were safely ensconced in their homes as they followed our every move. Right now, they likely followed Schubert and Humphreys, two strong climbers who had knocked out all else the galaxy had to offer. They would also be keeping an eye on Hansen and I. And then there was the pairing of Zeba and Cardhill, who were also making a bid that year. Zeba was an enigma of a climber, a small woman who looked far too frail in her heat suit and mask. When first I saw her navigating the lower column icefalls above base camp, I mistook her oxygen tanks for double aughts in size, such as they dwarfed her frame. The consensus was that there was little to fear in her attempt that year. I had done some digging before my uplink succumbed to the cold, and read that Zeba had knocked out the peaks of her home planet, none of which topped thirty thousand feet, but she had at least done them in style. No oxygen and swiftly, one of those modern climbers. It had been a private joy to watch her give in to the true mountaineering methods necessary on Mallory's great face. The methodical lift of crampons, the bulging tanks of air, the fogging and frosted masks. These were the ways of the true climber. Mallory is an instructor to all, and Zeba did not seem too full of herself to submit, learn, and adapt. Cardell, I figured, was the great unknown— Zeba had chosen an odd tentmate in the android, and if it were a man-sheen that was the first to summit Great Mallory, the consensus across the Alpine forums was that nothing would have occurred at all. There would not even be an accomplishment to Asterix. And anyway, I had sent notes a week ago to an old climbing body telling him not to worry. The cold was worse on the man-sheen's joints than our own. Hansen and I had left Camp 6 while Zeba was chipping away at Cartill's frozen ankles. And please don't tell me that a man's memories counted for the man himself, that the android lived because he remembered living. I have had many a conversation with Cartill around base camp and watched him with the Sherpas. He's no different from the droid who cleans my pools or walks my dog. A clever approximation, but with the movements too precise, too clean to pass for human. The other day, 
Hanson nudged me in time to turn and catch Cardhill taking a great spill on the east face. The way he did, even this, was unnatural. Supremely calm and without a whimper, the manchine had slid several hundred feet on his ass, working his climbing axe into the deep snow with all the false grace of an automaton. Nobody feared this duo as long as they were behind and below us. There, off our ropes and out of our way, they only had themselves to kill. Hansen and I left our flapping tent in utter darkness. The driven snow blocked out all but a few of the twinkling stars. Near the tent a pile of spent oxygen bottles gathered adrift. They glowed bright in Hansen's headlamp. Debris such as this would be left for all time. They were an addition to the landscape. The local Ha-Ying, whose lands included half of Great Mallory, made good money selling permits to aspiring climbers, and this litter came with the riches. The south face of Mallory, which some climbers posited would make for an easier ascent, was governed by the irascible Haiti. Great climbers by all accounts, but miserable at governing. The only assault on that face had been clandestine affairs. There had been some arrests over the years, but like many who come to Eno hoping to etch their name in the history books, most simply disappeared. Hansen broke snow for the first hour, his head down in a stiff breeze. We had radios in our parkas, but rarely used them. Good tentmates had little need for words. Roped into one another, the union becomes symbiotic. You match paces, one staring at a flashlit patch of bright snow, the other staring at a man's back illuminating a spot in a sea of darkness. Boots fell into the rapidly filling holes of the climber ahead, each lifting of a cramp on some new torture, even with the springs of the powered climbing pants taking most of the strain. I'd lost count of the number of peaks we'd climbed together. It was in the dozens across a handful of planets, most of those climbs coming over the past five years. Climbers tend to orbit one another long before they share tents. The first time I met Hansen was back on Earth on a new route of Nangiparbat, a small mountain but notorious for gobbling souls. Climbers called her Maneater, usually with knowing and nervous smiles. Tourists from other planets came to exercise on its west slope or to make an attempt on its south face while preparing for harsher climbs. Some took the tram to Everest to hike up to the top and join the legions who made that yearly pilgrimage only to walk away wondering what all the fuss was about. I tended to bite my tongue during such diminishing talks of my planet's highest peak. My twenty-year partnership with Saul, my previous tentmate, had ended on a harmless run-up Everest. There was a saying among the Haitai Sherpas, ropes slip through relaxed grips. The nearest I ever came to death was while climbing indoors, of all things. It wasn't something I told anyone. Those few who had been there and the doctors who tended to me knew. When anyone noticed my limp, I told them it happened during my spill on Kershunga. I couldn't say that I'd failed to double back my harness and took a forty-foot spill on a climb whose holds had been colour-coded for kids. Saul had also fallen prey to a relaxed grip. He had died while taking a leak on Everest's south col. It was hard to stomach, losing a good man and a great friend like that. Hansen who trudged ahead of me, had lost his former tentmate in more glorious fashion the same year Saul died. And so mountains brought couples together like retirement homes. You look around, and what you have left is what you bed down with. Ours, then, was a marriage of attrition, 
but it worked. Our bond was our individual losses and our mutual anger at the peaks that had taken so much from us. As Hansen paused, exhausted, I rounded him to break snow. I patted the old man on the back, the gesture silent with thick gloves and howling wind, but he bobbed his head in acknowledgement to let me know he was okay. I coughed a raspy rattle into my mask. We were all okay, and above us, the white plumes and airborne glitter of driven ice and snow hid the way to glory. But it was easy to find. Up. Always up. One more foot towards land that no man had ever seen and lived to tell about. At sixty thousand feet, the height of two Everest stacked one on top of the other, man and machine alike tended to break down. We were at the limit of my regimen of steroids, the gears in my hiking pants could be heard grinding against one another, even over all that wind, and the grease smeared over the parts of my face not sheltered by the oxygen mask had hardened until it felt like plaster, like blistered and unfeeling skin, but to touch it and investigate it was to invite exposure and far worse. Batteries meant to last days would perish in hours up there. The cold was death for them. And so our suits gave up and we moved from the death zone to a land that begged for a name far more sinister. The power left in struggling batteries went to the pistons and gears, rooted away from the heaters. Fingers and toes went first. They would grow numb, the blood would stop flowing through them, the flesh would necropsy and die right there on the bone. The Sherpa of Changli had a saying, A man can count on two hands all the climbs he conquers, and that man conquers nothing. I always took this to mean that the more we summit, the more we lose. Climbers were notorious for staring down bars in base camp at lifted mugs, silently counting digits gone missing, making a measure of a man's worth by how far they'd pushed themselves. Saul had a different take on the Changli, saying, To the people who lived in the shadows of mountains, these were not things to conquer. To climb them was foolish, and who would think to do so? As much as I had loved Saul, he was always too politically correct for my tastes. Breaking snow up that unnamed ridge, my mind turning to mush as supplemental oxygen and doped blood could only do so much, I felt the first pangs of doubt. My cough rattled inside my mask. My limbs felt like solid lead. Two days prior, at Camp 5, I had pushed myself beyond my abilities. Eating and drinking moved from inconvenient chores to something I dreaded. My weight was down. I hadn't been out of my clothes to see what I'd wasted away, just comforted myself instead on how much less I had now to lug to the top. The radio in my parka clicked on with the sound of Hansen breathing. I waited a moment between arduous steps and listened for what he had to say. When the radio clicked off, I turned to check on him. My headlamp pointed at his chest so as not to blind him. Hansen was a strong climber, one of the strongest I'd ever seen. He had fallen back to the end of the rope that joined us, his breath clouding his mask. Lifting a hand a few inches from his thigh was all the wave he could muster. Take your time, I told him, clicking the large switch on my belt. What I wanted to say was what the hell we thought we were doing. There, five thousand feet below us and eight light years away, was the tallest peak ever climbed. We were moving into the thin air above the highest of heads. We would have been in outer space on some small planets, in orbit around others, and still we wanted to conquer more.
The rope between us drooped as Hansen took a few laborious steps. I turned and broke snow, resigning myself to an extra hour at the head, an extra shift to give him more rest. It was hard to know what drove you once you passed the threshold of all pain. Maybe it was the thought of Schubert and Humphreys somewhere above us, either in glory or buried in snow. Maybe it was the fear that Zeba had gotten Cardil's ankle sorted and that they would begin their push later in the morning. Or maybe it was the promise I'd made to myself after telling my wife and kids that I would be safe. I had told them that I wouldn't take chances, but I had already promised myself something different. I would come home with that final ridge named after me, or I wouldn't come home at all. My altimeter died at 62,000 feet, even though the manufacturer sold these things with a guarantee of 100,000. Such guarantees were bullshit gestures with no real-world testing. As I climbed, I composed the post which I would make on the forums complaining of its failure, and had my remaining fingers been any kind of functional, I would have removed the strap from my arms to save the weight. Instead, I carried one more dead thing up with me. From then on, I had to guess how high I was by the hour. It was still dark and we were probably at 63,100 feet when I stumbled across Humphreys. He wore an orange suit, the kind men with low confidence and a care for their mortal coil wore. It made them more easily found and more likely to be found, two very different things. I pointed out the snow-dusted form so Hansen wouldn't trip on him, but I didn't slow. Humphreys had died facing the summit, which meant he hadn't made it. I felt a mix of relief and guilt for the awful thoughts I'd held in my sleeping bag all night. Schubert, of course, was still out there. We could meet him stomping down in the dark, his eyes as bright as the handful of twinkling stars above, and whatever was driving Hansen and I upward would likely leak out of our paws. Whatever glory I had hoped to win would be spent in the future days recounting my time on the same slopes as this other man. I would detail my ordeal up Schubert Ridge, a horrible name if ever there was one. I would write of his glory and bask in whatever shadows fell my way. These were my mad ruminations as I left his dead tentmate behind and crunched through that terrible snow a thousand feet beneath the peak. A tug at my harness gave me pause. Hansen was flagging again at the end of his rope and ours. I questioned what I was running on for Hansen to give out before me. I wondered if the doctors hadn't worked some kind of special magic between the doping and the careful regimen of drugs. Perhaps the coils in my pants were holding up better than his. Hansen had skimmed on his gears and had invested in more heat. I may be freezing to death, but I was still climbing. I saw the look on his face beyond the glare of my flashlight and the frost of his desperate breathing, and that look told me that this was as high as he would go. It was a look I'd only seen from him once before, but enough times from others to not need the radio. After a coughing fit, I jerked my thumb towards the summit. Hansen lifted his hand from his thigh and waved. As I pulled the quick release that held our ropes to my harness, I wondered if I would be stepping over both him and Humphreys on my way back down. God, I hope not. I watched him turn and trudge into the dark moor of night and white fang of snow before looking again to my goal. The summit was several more hours away. I would be the first or the second to stand there.
Those were adjacent numbers and yet light years apart in my esteem. They were neighbouring peaks with a precipitous valley between. Being second was death to me, so I lifted a boot, gears squealing, toes numb, and remembered with sadness the lies I had spoken to my family. There was nothing about this safe. If I loved them as much as I loved myself, I would have turned around long before Hansen had. The highlanders of Eno have a saying about climbing alone. The winds seek out the solitary. And sure enough, with Hansen dropping back to camp, hopefully dropping back to camp, the winds came to me and shoved my chest for being so bold. With my oxygen running low, the mask became an impediment to breathing, something to catch my coughs. Adjusting the top of the mask against my goggles, fingers frozen stiff, I let the wind howl through a crack, invigorating me with the cold. The gap sang like the sound a puff makes across the mouth of a bottle. This whirring howl was a sort of musical accompaniment. It made me feel less alone. The dwindling oxygen made me feel crazy. When I came across Schubert, I thought he was already dead. The snow was covering him, and the ridge here was perilously narrow. Solid rock stayed dusted with snow and ice, otherwise it felt the ridge itself should be blowing away. Schubert stirred as I made my slow and agonizing way around him. He was faintly swimming towards the summit, clawing through the ice, throwing his axe forward. I stopped and knelt by the young and powerful climber. His suit made no noise. It must have given out on him, leaving him alone and under his own power. My thoughts were as wild as the wind, disturbed by my air-starved mind. I thought of Cardill and how something so reliant on its mechanical bits held any hope for rising above Camp Seven. I rested a hand on Schubert's back to let him know he wasn't alone. I don't know that he ever knew I was there. He was still crawling, inch by inch, towards the summit as I trudged along, head down, mask singing a sad lament. If I made it to the top and got home, I decided I would name that ridge after him. I was already dreaming not just of being a legend, but the awesome humility I would display even so. It was delusion beyond delusion. I was dying, but like Schubert, I cared only about the next inch. The oxygen ran dry as the sun broke. My headlamp had grown feeble anyway, frosted with ice with its battery crippled by the freezing temperatures. This was my last sunrise, I was fairly sure. Cutting through the shark's teeth of peaks that ran the breadth of this alien continent, the dull red glow was empowering with its illusion of warmth. Once that large foreign star lifted its chin above the most distant of snow-capped crowns, it seemed to rise with a vengeance. It made a mockery of my own agonizing ascent. It occurred to me in this one light of dawn that I was the highest man in the universe. Coughing into my mask, I couldn't feel my legs, but I could at least balance on them. The handful, not quite, of fingers and toes I had left would be gone, but that was optimistic. I could see the summit up the ridgeline. There was no more technical climbing, no ice to work up, no faces or craggy steps, just a long walk on unfeeling stumps a walk to a grave that stood far over all mortal heads. I found myself on my knees without remembering falling. The snow was thin here, 
It blew off sideways and was just as soon replaced. There would be no flags ahead, no weather stations, no books to scribble in, no webcams showing a high sunrise to millions of net surfers. It was just a lonely and quiet peak. Not a footstep. Not ever. Untrammeled earth. A thing that had grown exceedingly rare. The people of Eno had their own name for Mallory. Locals always did. It translated to unconquerable. But of course nothing was. It was always a matter of time, of the right gear, the right support teams, or the ladders and lines and camps and bottles put in by hard-working Sherpas. I was on my hands and knees, mask howling, light-headed and half-sane, crawling towards my destiny. And I missed Hansen. I wanted him there. I missed him more than my wife and kids, who I would never see again. There was my grave up ahead, a bare patch of rock where snow danced across like smoke, like running water, like angels in lace dresses. I wondered if my body would lie there forever or if the wind would eventually shove me off. I wondered this as I reached the summit, dragging myself along, my suit giving up the last of its juice. Collapsing there, lying on my belly, I watched the sun rise through my mask, and when it frosted over and my coughing grew so severe I worried those with flecks of purple lungs spotting my vision, I accepted my death by pulling the mask free to watch this last sunrise, this highest and most magnificent sunrise with my very own eyes. The tallest climbs often are the easiest. All the great alpinists know this. Tell someone you've summited Makush or Delphi and the mountaineer will widen his eyes in appreciation while the layman squints in geographical confusion. The steep rock approaches of Makush more than make up for the lack of elevation, and of the several hundred who have reached the top, Hansen and I among them, thousands have perished. Few peaks have so bold a body count and so brief a list of conquerors. On the other hand, list the highest peaks of the eight old worlds and most will whistle in appreciation. Everyone knows the great climber Bargel Burke, the first to top the tallest mountain on each of the civilized worlds, but other climbers know that Dargel was hoisted up many of those by Sherpas, and that he never once assaulted the great man-killers who stand along the shoulders of those most famous giants and claim the more daring of men. This was a peak for climbers like Dargel, I thought, lying on the top of the universe and dying. Here was a peak for the tourists. One day, as I coughed up more of my lung, pink spittle melting the frost of snow on my mitts, the wealthy would pay for a jaunt to the top of Mallory. The drugs and heat suits and blood doping would improve. In another five years I would have made this climb and live to tell the tale. But not today. And anyway, in five years it would not have mattered. I wouldn't have been the first. The sun travelled through its reds and pinks until the frozen skin of Enor was everywhere golden. It was a good place to die. And when my body was found... They would know I'd made it, unless it was many years hence and the winds and blizzards had carried me off to a secret grave. They would know. Such had been Mallory's fate, the great and ancient climber whose name graced this peak. I was one of those who never believed Mallory had made it to the top of Earth's highest summit, but no longer. The madness of my oxygen-deprived brain 
the sad glory of my one-way victory, and suddenly I knew in that very moment that Mallory had climbed to the top of my homeworld. He had simply never planned for the climb back down. Sleep came amid the noisy and blustery cold. It was a peaceful sleep. My breathing was shallow and raspy, but at least the cough had gone away. I woke occasionally and looked an alien sun in the face, whispered a few words to that orange ball of fire, and allowed the ice to hold fast to my lids once more. I dreamed of my wife, my kids. I went back to the party my office had thrown, all the confetti and balloons, the little gifts that were well meant but that I would leave behind as useless. Coffee and dried meals, boot warmers that were suited for lesser hikes, the kind of gifts that show how little these revellers and kin know of where they are wishing me off to with their gay ribbons and joyous cards. The mementos likewise had been left behind, the pictures of my nephew that my sister dearly wanted me to carry to the roof of all the worlds, a dozen of these that seemed so small and light to each giver, but added up to difficult choices and considerable weight, until none of them even made it to base camp. I longed for all of them in that moment. Not that I could have dug them out with my dead fingers, but just to have them on my body. In case my preserved form was ever discovered and picked through by future explorers, just so they would see that these things were there, that I wasn't so alone. I woke once more and spoke to the sun, and he called me a fool. His climb was rapid and impressive, and who was I? I was a mortal pretending to do godly things. I had wax for wings. I was already dead, my body frozen, but all the effort of my being, my slowing and cooling blood, the best drugs doctors could pump into me, kept my thoughts whirring. Slowly whirring like gears with their dying batteries. Just one more turn, another thought. I woke and spoke to an angel, so small. The world was outsized for her, an angel in a mask, breath fogging it with ice, no tanks for that final and swift climb of hers. I passed out again, but I felt the world shudder beneath me. The mountain was rising. They did this, you know, confounding last year's climbers by lifting up a fraction more for the next season. Always this, our accomplishments subsiding to time and acclamation. That fear that our former feats were yesterday's glory. Every year the mountains moved just a hair higher. And I was likewise now rising and falling, numb everywhere except in my mind. Only in my head, by the jounce of my neck, could I feel the world move. Zeba was there, a face behind a mask an angel with no oxygen, labouring down that nameless ridge having summited after me. And Cardhill, whose ankle had seized, whose gears whirred, whose mind was said to be that of the great climber of the same name, but it was not something I ever believed until that moment, and I would never doubt it again. It was Cardhill who carried me, and the perfect grace that had seemed inhuman at base camp felt like a real man to me on that summit. Cardhill staggered and limped along. He cradled me in his mighty and trembling arms. At Camp 7, 
Hansen tended to me, though he was in no shape to do so. He said my hands were gone, my feet as well. I believed him. At six, we notified base camp. We informed Humphreys and Schubert's team that they had perished nobly. The controversy was not in my mind at Camp Six. I was weeping frozen tears. I was still dead on that peak, blabbering to alien stars. I had not yet been carried anywhere. There was no memory of Camp Five. I'm not even certain we stopped there. At Camp Four, a doctor removed my lips and my nose. It required no instruments. My Sherpas were there to congratulate me. The horror of what I'd done was far worse than the horror of what I'd become. I could look at myself in the mirror with no revulsion. To think of myself, though, was to invite black thoughts. Zeba and Carthill made it down the mountain ahead of me. I asked Hansen to work the radio and try to form the words with my new face. But it wasn't my lips that caused problems. It wasn't my tongue. At base camp, at this approximation of civilization, I was provided a glimpse of what awaited me across the worlds, and it did not matter who I told or how often. I wrote in every forum had letters crafted by those who could form them, who could understand my muted, lipless words. But Zeba, I was told, was already off to explore new worlds, and my exhortations that she be remembered fell on deaf ears. Ridgelines had already been named. And when my wife kissed my new face weeks later, the tears I wept were not for seeing her again, but for the misery, the pain of not having been left there where I deserved to lay, where I could be forgotten, frozen in the vastness of time, spinning lazily with broken wings beneath that great orange and alien star, beneath that star who alone would ever know the awful truth of my most hollow glory. There you go, don't forget, copyright is Hugh Howie's. Hugh, thank you so much. And Adam, thank you so much for putting this show together as well. It all goes out to you, sir. Well done. And what can I say, Nick? <laughs> Nick, you're a star. <laughs> thank you. So that is today's show. I hope you've enjoyed it. A little special there on Hugh Howie. I'll put links to everything on the show if you want to come over there and drop by Hugh or drop by Nick as well. And again, don't forget my live video on the 21st webinar. Larry Niven, Jerry Purnell and Greg Benford. If you want to ask one of these guys a question, you know, one of these are kind of our legends now in science fiction. I've looked enough to kind of snag them for a live event. It would be great to see you over there. Do pop over. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Three, two, one.
This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.